Today is the last stop on our journey through Romans. We've taken Romans in five sections over 20 months. We've interspersed that with visits elsewhere in Scripture related to topics that were raised in each section of Romans. But today we come to the end. We have literally the last sentence in Romans here. These last three verses are actually one sentence. And we are returned to a phrase used at the very beginning of Romans. That phrase is at the end of verse 26 there. You see it, the obedience of faith. If you hold a finger in chapter 16 and go back to chapter 1, you'll see that this phrase, obedience of faith, bookends the letter to the Roman church. Romans chapter 1, verse 5 We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. And you get the same reference to all the nations at the end, Romans 16, verse 26. This has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. And that it is the obedience of faith means a response to God through Christ, empowered by the Spirit that only the people of God make. This is not obedience in general. It's not obedience on its own. That can become religiosity very fast. It is the obedience of faith. Our response to God's mercies applied to us, as the beginning of this section, this last section of Romans chapter 12 uh, says to us, Worship is an all-of-life response to God. It's conditioned by Jesus making us acceptable to God, not our efforts. This is the baseline for the obedience of faith, this bookend phrase of Romans. Now, if in going through Romans, Romans has gone through you, uh, one way you know it is not that you can quote sections of Romans or trace the argument. Any atheist can do that. What an atheist cannot do is produce the obedience of faith. And let's be honest, a lot of theists don't produce it either. Easy believism is a thing. While we want to be easily edified as God's people, as opposed to hard to edify or hardly ever edified, as we've talked about in this last section of Romans since chapter 12, easy believism, so-called, it, it looks the part, it shows up to church, but it lacks the love of God, both a reckoning of His love for us and, and our love for Him developing, and thereby lacking that, lacks submission to Jesus that is called here the obedience of faith. Our text, these last three verses, this one sentence that finishes Romans, is called a doxology. If you're looking at a study Bible, it's probably offset as a little paragraph there at the end with doxology as the subheading. And and if I can just give you a little textual note on this, what makes doxology different from benediction, because recently in chapter 15, we looked at benediction statements. Benediction means good word or well said. Benediction is a stylized way of blessing God's people, affirming God's disposition toward his people is good to us due to Jesus, 
A doxology is similar, except a doxology, you get what scholarship calls an eternity formula, which we have here in our text toward the end. See how verse 27 says to the only wise God, be glory forevermore? Eternity formula. Glory is the word doxa, uh, from which we get doxology. If benediction is a good word spoken about the here and now, God's disposition toward us in Christ, good, Doxology is a glory word that summarizes here and now in light of then and there, heaven. When our faith is fully sight and we can see finally in fullness the one who has redeemed us. Now when you hear dox these days in the information age, if you're online savvy, you know that dox, D-O-X, refers to a toxic practice online where Someone captures your private information and broadcasts it publicly in order to damage you, to hurt your reputation, maybe even to rob you. That's doxing, D-O-X-X-I-N-G, an inventor word for the information age. And it's one of the worst things that can happen to anyone today. But God's dox, God's doxa, this is the best thing that can happen to anyone. His glory made accessible to us. God exposes us publicly in calling us sinful in, in both unrighteous and self-righteous expressions. But he doesn't do this to hurt us. He doesn't do this to humiliate us, but to work in us for his glory, which is our, encompasses our, our complete and, and total transformation. The doxing of the people of God, doxing in reverse. Everything bad about you, God already knows, but he doesn't hold it over us. God's dox is not destructive, it's redemptive. And doxologies are therefore music in our ears. This doxology, notice it here, verses 25 through 27, a one-sentence summation. Doxologies are often summations. And this one happens to be a summation of what the gospel is and also how the gospel works. And that'll be our outline today, our two takeaways from this last text in Romans. We'll talk about what the gospel is and how the gospel works from the summation of it at the end of Romans that is this doxology, Romans 16, verses 25 through 27. So with this in mind, first, what the gospel is. Verse 25, the gospel is the preaching of Jesus Christ, which is meant by that, the preaching about Jesus Christ. Uh, that is who he is, what he did, his way being the only way to God, his truth being the same, his life indestructible. Look at it, verse 25, now to him who's able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of God, the eternal God. Stop there because the rest of it is how the gospel works to bring about the obedience of faith. We'll get to that. But our point for now is what the gospel is, which Romans has settled for us. Not that we had doubts. Many other places in Scripture give us what the gospel is. But over the last year and a half in Romans, I've preached the settled gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus fulfilled the requirements of God flawlessly in his life, suffered the judgment of God as our substitute, 
Though the cross is not, never explicitly mentioned in the book of Romans, interestingly. You would think Romans being what it is, you'd get cross, cross, cross everywhere. But there's references to Jesus dying uh, throughout. There's a reference in chapter 6, verse 6, to our being crucified with Christ. But otherwise, no explicit mention of the cross. And yet the cross falls, the shadow of it, on every passage in Romans telling us of our need for it. Our need for what Christ did for us there. The cross is at the core of our gospel. And Christ putting himself there on that cross is how this righteousness that we need because we're unrighteous and self-righteous. We need his righteousness and this is how it comes to us. And so we trust him in order to be justified, declared righteous before God, never to be lost again. We're freed from our slavery to sin and all its expressions and we will be bodily resurrected as he was to live with him in unfiltered glory. Romans settles the gospel for us. What it is, according, verse 25, to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. That means the gospel we believe was previewed and hidden in the Old Testament. Previewed and hidden both. There were clues, but not the full picture. This is why Paul spent so much time in Romans talking about Abraham and the people of Israel, their role. The prophets and patriarchs did not fully know how God would bring the nations to himself. But God was taken at his word by the prophets and the patriarchs, and they practiced the obedience of of faith themselves. What was kept secret for long ages, into verse 25, now into verse 26, has now been disclosed and made known to all nations, to us, to, to Gentiles, most of us, if not all of us, who had, who had no advantage with God. We had no merit on our own, but God brought us in, brought forth our belief, sustains and strengthens our obedience. This is the gospel. Gospel's a settled message. But these are unsettled times, even in churches. So it becomes necessary when we say what the gospel is, to also say what the gospel is not. The gospel is the preaching of Jesus Christ to the most fundamental human need, to be reconciled to God. The gospel is not the preaching of moralism. Just be a good person. That's the default idea of most people you will meet out there. How would it happen if you were to be accepted by God? Well, I think I'm a pretty good person. The gospel tells us that we're neither basically good nor basically bad in the sense of being incapable of any good. What we are is basically for ourselves in such a way that sin is always an attractive option for us. And our sin is what actually turns the gospel into moralism. The message of just be good and you'll go to heaven. We, we, we like that. We would like it to be that way. The problem with moralism is that it takes us either to pride, uh, the sense, I, I got this, I'm a good person, or it takes us to despair if you ever get an honest sense of the crushing holiness of God and realize you can never make yourself good enough for one such as he. The problem with moralism, it takes us either to pride or it takes us to despair. If you want to summarize the life of Jesus Christ in one word, the word to use is obedience. 
This is why you get this phrase, the obedience of faith. Obedience and faith both cue us to Jesus. Jesus obeyed his Father in full. And the point of being a Christian, a follower of Christ, is to exhibit faith in Jesus that fuels obedience to God. And so if obedience is the key word in the life of Jesus, then to be like Jesus, Christ-likeness, is obedience to God, to render the obedience of faith. Now, here's the tension, the rub. You won't render that 100% of the time because you're not Jesus. But your desire, knowing him, your desire is to render that 100% of the time. The way we're assured of our salvation in Scripture is to see that we have the desire to obey the Lord and that we will. This is what it means to love him. The gospel is not moralism. Just be a good person. It's the preaching of Jesus Christ to our most fundamental need to be reconciled to God because we're not good and to glorify him in and through and by the goodness of Jesus. The gospel is not moralism, neither is the gospel conservatism or progressivism. The gospel does bear upon a host of social issues. It does. And conservatism and progressivism are competing structures for how best to make culture. But to make the gospel a political ideology is to engage in idolatry. And idolatry takes you to the same either-or place that moralism takes you. Idolatry takes you to the uh, place of pride. I'm on the right side. Or it takes you to despair when your ideology, when your ideology is not in power. Let me ask you a question. <clears throat> is the evangelical church in America at this moment known chiefly for our preaching of Jesus Christ? Or are we known for the preaching of moralism and political ideology? I asked Google. Huh? On Friday, I typed into Google, the search bar, evangelicals are, to see what they would offer as the fill-in, fun with algorithms, what are people searching for in relation to evangelicals, and here's what the first two, the only two that popped up, were evangelicals are, and Google suggested developing new powers, which was kind of news to me, and the second one was evangelicals are modern-day Pharisees. According to Google, we're known for preaching moralism and preaching political ideology. Now, you can dismiss that if you want to. You can say, that's Google and they have an agenda. That's, that's kind of our always, our little, we always just sort of dismiss everybody as if we don't have an agenda. Um, but when you talk to people, and I hope you're talking to people. I hope you're engaging people in this time that you have, this precious little bit of time you have on this planet. I hope you, you talk to people about your faith. And as you do, 
they may raise questions. And typically where they'll raise questions is about the compatibility of faith and science. Hasn't, hasn't science disproved the existence of God? Or they'll talk to you about faith and sexuality. Or they'll talk to you about matters of identity politics because they want to know how you, the Christian, think about this issue and that person in the public eye and why you think as you do and how can you think that. And all that we, that we get from being identified as evangelicals, if you can train yourself to slow that down and say, before we talk about that, and I'll talk with you about that, I'll answer your question. Can I ask you first, if you've ever really thought about the implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if it's true. You've completely changed the conversation for the moment. Because listen, if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, if he walked away from death and out of his tomb, if God gets glory forevermore because of Jesus, as verse 27 says, he can ask anything of us he wants. And that is the issue of all time, not just these times. See, the gospel is not where we stand on the issues. The gospel is that Jesus Christ stands at the right hand of God from whence he comes to judge the living and the dead. And if you're going to survive that judgment, you'll need to have followed him out of his tomb and be living submitted to his loving rule. That's the issue. That's where we need to center and take people when we enter into dialogue with them. That's what the gospel is. It's the declaration of how to be reconciled to the God who is there and not silent. And now our second consideration, how the gospel works. The gospel works, as verse 26 puts it at the end, to bring about the obedience of faith. I've already said a couple things about this, but that our obedience is of faith keeps obedience from becoming moralism. I'm doing this or I'm not doing that, not in order to get God's favor because God's favor has already been given to me in Christ. And this changes me from the inside out. It changes the motivational structures of, of my heart. It changes my outlook and, and redirects my, my desires, reforms my desires because I never get over Jesus accomplishing for me on my behalf what I could not do on my best day by my best efforts. I am hopelessly lost and without hope without him. Gospel works to bring about the obedience of faith by continually confronting our idols. Just as Israel of old was so drawn to idols, Israel and Judah... So are God's people on this side of the cross. Our hearts are idle factories. John Calvin said that idols preoccupy us. They commandeer our best energies. We look to our idols to fulfill us, to secure us. We make idols out of money. We make idols out of sex. We make idols out of power and so much else besides. But you know... Life is such a brittle, fragile thing. Every day the world rolls over on someone who the day before sat atop it. Every day that happens. It wouldn't take much to ruin any of us. 
I could make one, two decisions in the course of a day and be ruined by day in. If our hopes are planted only in the here and now, or if life and living is about stringing together all these awesome experiences, then rinse and repeat, what happens when it's not awesome enough? What happens when it's not awesome anymore? You may find this silly, but our vacation in the Rockies this year, all of the times I've driven out west, I love to drive out there. I've flown out there, I've driven out there, I've been out there a lot. I always get a thrill though when I drive because coming from here and you go across the plains and, and there's that first moment where you see them in the distance, the mountains. I'm, I'm like the little hobbit, uh, Bilbo Baggins, mountains Gandalf, I wanna see the mountains. You know. Except this year. I saw them there in the distance as I have so many times before. There was no thrill this time. I was glad to be out there, but realized I wasn't awestruck. I knew it. It was flat. I still loved the place, but mountains, natural beauty, you know, it's an awesome experience at times. But did I really think that they were going to give me more life? Did I think seeing the mountains would unburden me? Did I think they would heal me? I remember hearing Robbie Zacharias make this observation. He was putting this in the context of money, sex, and power. His observation was, there is no greater emptiness than experiencing that which you thought would be ultimate and it lets you down. There is no greater emptiness than experiencing that which you thought would be ultimate, everything, and it it lets you down. See, that's the experience eventually awaiting us on the other side of anything we look to in life for ultimate hope, ultimate healing, fulfillment, life itself, short of, of Jesus himself. But that's what we do in our idolatry. And we can turn anything into an idol, anything at all. The gospel works to break us of our idolatries by turning us to the desire of nations who is bringing someone from everyone every day to himself through the gospel message about a savior to whom we can give all of our sin and all of its forms and get uprightness from him in return. Not a ticket to heaven entitling the bearer to live however he or she chooses in the, men, in the meantime but to, to live strengthened by him and seeking more of that. Our desires, again, reformed and renewed and redirected and, and presenting ourselves to, to him for his service, which is our response of worship, the obedience of faith. I mentioned Bilbo Baggins. He was brought to mind this week in my reading, as was the conclusion of his story, Tolkien's Hobbit. As we're on the last page, last lines of Romans, this is the last page, the very last lines, what I'm about to share with you, of The Hobbit. Bilbo and Gandalf are discussing the renewed fortunes of the dwarves with Balin, leader of the dwarves, who is at the story's conclusion crediting the turnaround 
After everything seemed lost, he credits certain prophecies with coming true in their lifetimes. And that's, that's why they're alive and well at the end of the story. And Bilbo marvels at this, even though he himself was a participant. Gandalf detects the surprise in Bilbo's voice when Bilbo says, So the prophecies of the old songs have come true after all. Of course, said Gandalf, and why should they not prove true? You don't really suppose, do you, that all your adventures and escapes were managed by mere luck just for your sole benefit? You're a very fine person, Mr. Baggins, and I'm very fond of you, but you're only quite a little fellow in the wide world after all. Thank goodness, said Bilbo, laughing, and handed him the tobacco jar. Why are we surprised? The old prophecies prove true, and that the hope of the nations is our Savior. Thank goodness. I mean, thank God. <laughs> thank God it's not luck that brought gospel preaching to our ears. Thank God it's not our best efforts that get us in on things God purposed and, and keep us attuned to a song that's been sung from ages past about all God purposes to bring about for us. Thank God he sees us through everything all the way from the beginning to the end because it's his story. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for time in this book, an important book in our New Testament as it gives us what the gospel is and how it works. And so in this uh, last look at it for now, as we've gone through it, beginning in January of 18 and through to August of 19, thank you for our sojourn. Thank you for what you've taught us. Thank you for how you've shown us again and again that though you have every reason to be opposed to us and against us, you are for us. And there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Thank you for bringing about the obedience of faith in our lives, and we pray that you will continue to do so until we draw our last breath. We look forward, Lord, to seeing you, but in the interim, the meantime, seeing what you will do in and through us as we continue to offer our lives up to you as living sacrifices, which is our response to you in earnest in worship. Lord, we pray you will make it so in our lives, in and through us, for Jesus' sake. We pray in his name. Amen.